Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. I see that people who have issues with infections don't have the flexibility to have a Th1 response when they need it, a cellular response when they need it, and a Th2 response or an antibody response when they need that. They aren't able to, to they don't have flexibility in their immune system. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 165 with our good friend, Dr. Rob Abbott. Also, you will know for sure that Aurora is not here in the studio with me. She's with her twin sister, and they are dropping her off in Fargo, North Dakota. Thelma and Louise are on the road again, so you'll have to put up with me by myself, and I'll do the best that I can. In this episode with Dr. Abbott, you're going to learn why he thinks a big part of chronic infection is an inflexible immune system. We're going to take a deeper look at the roles of IgM and IgG in the immune system, and also mast cells' role in the immune system. As you know, every journey through Lyme disease is different, and cookie-cutter approaches just don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja, and that's why each week we bring you new and interesting guests just for you and just like Dr. Abbott. We all know Lyme disease is an international problem, and this week we have listeners from London to Tel Aviv and Zurich to Napier, New Zealand. And as you know, we do the top 10 Lime Ninja Cities for the week. And this week we start off number 10 in Utica, New York, which is my backyard. I wonder who's listening in Utica. Anyway, if you're from Utica and listening, send me an email. Love to know who you are and maybe meet you. Have a cup of coffee. Also, number nine, New York, New York. Number eight, Brooklyn, New York. Number seven, Littleton, Colorado. Number six, East Brunswick, New Jersey. Number five, Miami, Florida. Just remember that when they tell you there's no Lyme disease in the South. Number four, Naperville, Illinois. Number three, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Number two, Orlando, Florida. And number one this week is Los Angeles, California. This week's guest, Rob Abbott, is a first-year medical resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Front Royal, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017 
and he approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls spiritually focused and evolutionary informed functional medicine. Please enjoy this week's episode of Lime Ninja Radio with Dr. Rob Abbott. Dr. Abbott, hello. It's McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hey, McKay. It's good to hear you again. Yes, it's good to talk to you again. And thank you for agreeing to come back on. When we first spoke, we had talked about doing a module, a podcast on co-infections, and we're both very excited about that. But you've got this project that you're working on, this functional medicine project where you're putting together a video platform for other physicians. And you mentioned you were doing this whole module on Lyme disease. So when you came back with some talking points, you had way more <laughs> than just co-infections on there. So, and, and I think it's great. So I, the point you bring up is brilliant. And the, the point is the co-infections and Lyme disease really are all part of what's going on with our immune system. And I realized, oh my goodness, we've never really gone in depth anywhere about the immune system and how it works. And now that I have a doctor friend, you, we, I can ask you these kind of questions. So let's spend today talking about the immune system. How does that sound? That sounds like a great idea. Okay, so let's get a little bit uh, nitty-gritty here. So you get bit by a tick, right? And you get some transfer of pathogens, whatever that might be, into your body. So your innate immune system begins to respond immediately. And is that what causes a rash? So good question. Um, My understanding is... Uh, is no, it's a, it's kind of complicated. I wish I had a really good answer. And there's probably someone listening to this who actually has the, the, the good answer. But my understanding is actually that that's more in sort of the, um, evolving phase of the innate into the adaptive and it involves T cells and the, the cells rather than that initial, um, uh, sort of innate response. Okay. So so Um, hold up. So then what would, what's the innate response? Yeah, so the innate response is primarily in this case. So if we're talking about Lyme, you know, Lyme is uh, a syndrome caused by a extracellular bacteria. So essentially, a bacteria that is outside and uh, of ourselves, um, and so our first line of immunity against those types of bacteria um, are things called neutrophils. It's the, if anyone's gotten their blood cell count, they've probably looked and seen there's all these different types of, um, of white blood cells, the immune fighting cells. Neutrophils are one of them. The other fancy name for them is polymorphic nuclear, nuclear cells or PMNs. But they are the frontline folks. They are when you think of acute inflammation, think of neutrophils, and their main job is to get to the front line, and they are trying to kill those extracellular bacteria. And primarily, the way they do that is through phagocytosis, that engulfing of bacteria, and then they sort of, you know, that's actually where we get pus. Is all this sort of secreted goo? This, you know, that's cellular debris. That's that's the neutrophils sort of doing their killing um, 
of you know a bacteria, um, but they're the first line agents going to the scene of the crime, so to speak. And more specifically, with Lyme, given that it's an extracellular bacteria, that's really the main focus initially is is those neutrophils. So, are neutrophils involved when you like sprain your ankle and it swells up like that, and they get yes. inflammation? Yeah, so they are also there the initial because they secrete a lot of chemicals that help to modify the inflammatory response. But they're that acute um, inflammatory cell. So let's let's talk about size here. Is a neutrophil big enough to engulf uh, Borrelia, an individual Borrelia? So that's a really good question. So basically, um, I probably should have said this in the beginning. So. The other really good way to think about this is the size of the cell involved is going to dictate, or the size of the pathogen is going to dictate what type of immune response we have. So you're right. So if something is bigger than the immune cell, it's not going to try to kill it by engulfing it because it's just not possible. That's why we have this other branch where we start to secrete um immunoglobulins to kind of coat this larger organism or secrete and just try to get on its surface and insert these chemicals that can degrade the the bacteria, the virus from the inside. Um, and so it's a, you know, a, I like to think of our immune system is matched to the cell type. So in the case of Borrelia, yes, it can, you know, there can be this, um, uh, engulfing this phagocytosis by neutrophils. And the other one that's primarily involved too is something called a macrophage. And you can guess in the name, it tells you all you need to know about the cell. It's, it's macro. And it's it eats big, things. <laughs> and it eats things. Exactly. Um, so the macrophage is one of those um, initial mediating cells as well. And its main job, it's got a lot of jobs. Interestingly, they're one of the most interesting cells um, at least initially, is to engulf and kill things. And the primary way it does it is once it engulfs the bacteria um, or engulfs the pathogen, is it, it takes it into a little organism and creates what's called a phagolysosome. Um, the lysosome is the place you don't want to be. There is just It's an acidic environment. There's all sorts of other you know, enzymes and proteins that will degrade you. It's, it's a scary place. Um, so that's essentially what the macrophage does is engulf this bacteria, makes this phagolysosome, secretes all these things, and psh, there it goes, you know, you've now killed the, you've neutralized the bacteria. Interestingly, you know, so we've developed that way to kill certain types of bacteria. So in this coevolutionary dance, certain types of bacteria actually want to be engulfed. And what they do is they can actually persist in a phagolysosome. So they've actually um, manipulated their structure such that they can live in that phagolysosome. And it's actually a pretty good place. If you can, you know, um, get inside of that dungeon, so to speak, and persist, uh, you can actually be pretty safe. Um, I won't right. get into the specifics because that'll be for sort of part two, but um, that's getting back to that co-evolutionary dance of these organisms, just as we, you know, as soon as we figure out a way to, um, to sort of, to stop them from, from growing and, and propagating in the rest of our body, they figure out a way how to persist. Um, so that's just one mechanism that, um, different types of bacteria can, uh, have developed to evade our immune system. Right. And, and they can hitch a ride through on the macrophage and end up in different areas of the body, right? Exactly. So yeah. the macrophages move a ton. So interestingly, the macrophage, it's, 
I sort of hinted at its name, macro and phage. So it's a phagocyte. You know, it's a uh, it's a phagocyte. It's meant to engulf, and it's large. It actually didn't start out like that. Its precursor cell is something called a monocyte. Some people might be familiar with uh, the term monocyte when you know it gets thrown out for chronic infections or viral infections. I don't really. Um, don't, I don't like making that association because it's still kind of too narrow, but essentially the macrophage's precursor cell is the monocyte. And, uh, and so it sort of starts out as this initial monocyte. And then when it gets to the tissue, that specific tissue, that's when we sort of call it a macrophage. So tissue macrophage is kind of what's more commonly uh how we more commonly refer to these cells, just to remind yourself that it's um, a tissue-specific cell, because um, the macrophage is not really what's circulating, it's what's at the tissue. The monocyte is the cell that's actually circulating in the body, ready to turn into a macrophage. And one of the most interesting bacteria um, that has utilized the macrophage to actually persist and propagate itself um, is tuberculosis, uh, mycobacteria. Tuberculosis, which you know we don't really think much about in sort of modern America, but caused you know was a uh, was a terrible disease um, for for so long, and uh, it essentially you know was able to infect alveolar macrophages, which is macrophages in the lung, um, and could get around and move around the body and uh, cause all sorts of type of disease. But that's one of the ways that yeah. Um, certain types of bacteria are able to infiltrate certain tissues is getting into macrophages and persisting inside of them um, to get to, yeah to get to specific tissues. Great. So now let's so we've kind of covered a little bit about the innate immune system and you've talked a little bit about the transition into the adaptive. So what so let's you know the Borrelia comes in. Again, I'm just going to keep going to Borrelia, and I know it's going to vary from different bacteria, but let's, you know, that's kind of our home base here. So mm-hmm. the neutrophils get activated, the macrophages get activated, and what what tags the Borrelia with antibodies? What cell does that? Yeah, so essentially, now we're getting into that sort of adaptive phase. So we started to recruit T cells. Um, these are a type of lymphocyte. So going back to our little CBC, our our blood chemistry, you know, people are probably familiar with the lymphocytes. Um, that lineage includes primarily T cells and B cells. Um, the T cells, their main job. There's sort of two lineages of the T cells. One of them, they really are just responsible for killing things. They're the we call the CD8 positive T cells. Um, they're uh, also referred to as cytotoxic T cells. They do the killing. The other lineage um, of uh, T cells, they're more of what we call effector T cells. They're kind of org- they're the really the orchestrators of this whole process, um, and they're the ones that are deciding what's going to be the best way to remove this pathogen. Do we need to continue sending more cells, such as the CD8? positive T cell? Or do we need to switch over and use, uh, make some antibodies? Is that going to be more effective? And so what these T cells then do is communicate with B cells, which are really the 
antibody producing cells. Um, and so there's this wonderful dance of all of these different antigens. So, you know, the macrophages uh, are able to sort of engulf things and then they take bits and pieces of that bacteria and they present it on its surface so that the T cells can come and say, hmm, that's interesting. What is that? And there's this constant sampling of the environment. Um, the, uh, that, that process is what we call antigen presentation. And there's a few different types of cells that are responsible for antigen presentation. The macrophage is one of them. Others are B cells. And then more commonly, the one that's the uh, most well understood is the dendritic cell. I'll get to that in a little bit. But essentially, you have this whole population of antigen-presenting cells that their main job is to sort of engulf bits and pieces of the environment and then process it and then present it on its surface so that the B cells and the T cells can come by and, you know, tell it what it is. Is that self? Is that something else that we should be worried about? And then that will then tell those B cells to go and talk to other cells to say, okay, we need to start making... Uh, an immunoglobulin, an antibody, because this looks foreign. Um, so then what uh, what develops is um, these B cells start creating and secreting immunoglobulins. The first one that's usually most active in an infection is a branch of this kind of, uh, of the military, of the immunoglobulin military, called IgM. Now, there are a couple different branches that I'll talk about after this, but um, IgM, its main job is to kind of go out and find that pathogen that the immune system now knows is out there. It doesn't quite, you know, totally know, and it's starting to pick up on the neutrophils need some help. They haven't been able to completely neutralize it by itself, so that's why you know we need to send out IgM. And IgM is interesting in that it's it's very large. Um, it's a very large uh, molecule because um, an individual antibody. I like to think it's a Y. You can take you know, think picture uh, picture a Y, and you can have the the two points at the top and the one point at the bottom, and they're each in charged with doing uh, two very different things. The top part of the Y, the sort of the split, um, that's the, the part of the antibody that's going to be attached to the, uh, the pathogen, the bacteria, what have you. Um, the other part, the sort of trunk of the Y, that's the communicating portion. That's what's going to be communicating with the other cells saying, hey, this is what it is and we need to, you know, uh, we need to kill it. And so IgM, interestingly, is, uh, is a collection of five of those Ys. So what it ends up being is this sort of beautiful spiral um, or beautiful circle of five of these antibodies, five of these Ys, with the trunks pointing in the center and the, the spokes of the Y pointing outwards. So you actually have 10 of these spokes that are just kind of circulating, and there that's the portion that can bind to these pathogens, the bacteria. So it makes sense. Like That seems like a really good evolutionary uh, decision. Let's send out this thing with 10 sampling arms to be able to find this bacteria. And then its job, it isn't doing 
you know, it's not engulfing things, it's attaching to the surface, but it's helping to recruit a secondary system, a helper system that's going to improve the neutrophils and the macrophages' ability to kill things. I don't, um, I don't want to get into that system too much because it's a little complicated, but if people are really interested, what they're mainly recruiting is this system called the complement system. Um, basically, these small molecules that are going to help the neutrophils and the macrophages make their job, make them do a better job. Um, but if, like I said, if you think about it, you have this massive molecule, this massive IgM molecule with all of these you know, little spokes that can go out and attach to bacteria, and they're trying to recruit more helpers, more helpers, these sort of t t smaller molecules to help the neutrophils and the macrophage try to clear the bacteria, clear the pathogen. So this IgM is this first phase of this, this 10-spoke kind of... It's, I stick, I'm, I'm thinking of like a burr or like a burdock thing that the immune system sends out. It sticks to the the bacteria, and then it's it's been tagged. So now anything yeah. kind of just happening going by and says, "Oh, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe we should pay attention to this thing over here," and and, and starts to recruit uh, yeah. the, the rest of the immune system. So then, what's so that's the IgM, and you said that's fairly large. What's the IgG? What's the next phase with the IgG? Yeah, so the next phase with IgG, and I'll bring up a slide here that's helpful. <laughs> helpful to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, you could send, if you could send me a picture of that, we'll put a link up. I will send you yeah, a couple pictures. Um, yeah, that'd be great. So, so, yeah, so going back to structure connected to function. Another key idea here. Think about the structure of the molecule uh, or the cell involved, and you'll be able to understand its function. So, we have that initial IgM, which it doesn't, it can't it doesn't really do a good job with neutralizing anything, and it, it doesn't really recruit mast cells or um, natural killer cells. It, it really is only helpful at initiating that complement system that sort of and I still can't fully wrap my head around that system but it's a it's a very interesting system that basically like I mentioned earlier helps to make the job of the the innate cells a little bit easier okay so um, so maybe so maybe the better analogy again I'm kind of the model versus the science here so we can wrap our minds around it. so it's more like a bookmark it's like okay we got to get to this and do something about it yeah. Even better. I've got a stack of books on my desk right now. And that's like my <laughs> IGM is like, okay, I need to get into these. But then once I get into the book, it's like, I don't need to have it stacked on my desk anymore. I've got, you know, I'm highlighting it and underlining things and putting sticky notes on it. So it's like, that's the the next level of it. But this is, you know, the first phase is more like, yeah, that we've got a problem here. We need to address a problem and we need to get into this more deeply by bringing people on. So it's, it's an intermediary step. I, th I thought it was yeah. much, I thought it was much more of just like a just less specific uh, immune response, but it's really just an intermediate step. And that's, that's why you do the, they, they have got the two tier testing, right? You do the IgM in the beginning, Correct. right? Yeah. And to see yeah. what's going on. And then you say, okay, you know, this will pick it up early on, but after a while, you don't have as much IgM around because now it's moved into uh, we're we're more on a we're deep into the book we're deep into this immune response it, it's persisted it hasn't cleared out and and we're we're in a different phase of of infection fighting is that close enough yeah no that's actually that's really great yes so I see that 
the you know persistent infections what we're causing what we're going to call persistent infections which my definition of that is continued symptoms is a clinical syndrome persistent infection is not simply the presence of a bacteria or in this case lyme it is truly a clinical syndrome um, uh, with symptoms um, i see that as a dysregulated immune response either basically reactivating an, uh, an acute inflammatory response and not being able to switch to resolve that and turn it off or actually going into what's more common is basically getting stuck in sort of a, a chronic cycling of um, of immune activation and um, in understanding the different branches of the immune system people have started to hypothesize um, I alluded to this earlier with the cellular and humoral another way of calling it is the th1 and th2 uh, sides of the immune system. The Th1 is sort of more cellular oriented and the Th2 is more antibody oriented. And there's a lot of people that have put theories forth that a lot of our diseases are imbalances in either basically a shift to too much Th1 and not enough Th2 or too much Th2 and not enough Th1. The reality is the reality is it's much more complicated than that and some of the early models haven't haven't been borne out in human models, but a lot of the autoimmune conditions, a lot of allergies and asthma, we can look at this, these signatures of immune cells and say, there's a lot of immune cells in this side of the immune system. Why is that the case? Um, what we're really coming to discover is it's not really a defect in getting um, so simplistic as, oh, this is a Th2 dominant or overactive response, or this is a Th1 uh, dominant overactive response. But there's actually these mediators, these things called regulatory T cells that are meant to sort of help balance so you don't get stuck in a TH2 side of things or you don't get stuck in a TH1 side of things. And I see that people who have issues with infections don't have the flexibility to have a TH1 response when they need it, a cellular response when they need it, and a TH2 response or an antibody response when they need that. They aren't able to, to they don't have flexibility in their immune system. It's something I've applied to a lot of um, principles in health is this ability to be flexible, metabolically flexible, being able to utilize different fuel sources for energy. Um, I'm coming to see that we need flexibility to be able to, to switch from each side of the immune system. So it's not about you know strictly being a Th2 problem or a Th1 problem. I see it as a problem of being able to switch when you need to and where that actually brings me back to, and this is really just speculation, um, is that the, the, the reason we get have issues switching from these responses is three things. One is actually those presenting cells, how we're presenting the antigen to the body, even outside of what that antigen is. I think you alluded to that earlier. We've, we're bombarded with so many different toxins and the number of antigens, quote unquote, that we're having to respond to now is... Um, and the variety of them, the novelty of them is, is so beyond our ancestral path, our past. But the uh, that initial response, how we're presenting antigen, I see that as probably 
I'm going out on a limb as being the, the, the system that's most effective because what that leads to is that's the that's sort of the, the crux point of where do we go with our immune response? That's sort of telling the body, how are we going to respond to this? And interestingly enough, a cell I mentioned earlier, the dendritic cell, who's probably the most important antigen-presenting cell, the majority of those cells are lining our gut. They're on the other side of that enterocyte, that intestinal lining, and they have little kind of projections into the, the lumen of our gut. And their job, all their job is, is to grab some of that antigen, bring it in and say, is this self, is this non-self? Should we do something about it? And guess what we have an epidemic of in uh, our current society? Intestinal permeability, absolutely Disreg dysregulation yeah. of the gut barrier, and so what that leads to is the dendritic cells not being able to do their job properly. It's even much more than you know when you get leaky cells, you know bigger antigens get in. But I see it as the dendritic cells aren't able to do their jobs properly, so we're not able to coordinate that downstream response. So we can get stuck in fighting a battle where we've put all of our energy into TH2 and we can't get out of it. We can't switch back to do, you know, a cellular response when we need to. And those T regulatory cells, we're really just starting to learn about them. Um, they're the primary mediators, it seems like, interacting with these antigen-presenting cells to dictate, to try to turn off and shift things to get it back to a more homeostatic balance. And so bringing this all the way back to your original question, I see that people who have issues with chronic infections or persistent symptoms are people who have issues with antigen present presentation, so those dendritic cells, and uh, have issues with those T regulatory cells and being able to modulate their immune response. And get this, the most critical window in order to help educate the what how our immune system should respond is early in life and where are we also getting the most disruption uh in terms of um, antibiotics and other exposures early in life that critical window you don't get that period back you will not get that period back and if you grew up in an environment where uh, you were given lots of antibiotics or you were exposed to lots of things or it was a stressful environment with mom, whatever it is, if you had a that critical period was poorly stimulated or dysregulated, some sort of, um, it was somewhat dysregulated, then you may not be able to develop a fully balanced immune system later in life. And those people are probably also the ones who are going to be susceptible to this dysregulated immune response and potentially right. chronic infections. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. And just to remind people, you've all heard of this. This is the whole studies you hear about that the Amish kids don't have allergies when they grow up. And that's because they're playing with the cows and the cats and the dirt and they're eating organic things from day one. So that's the whole kind of stimulation and training of the immune system to recognize, help recognize what's friend and foe. And then we get into the overuse of antibiotics, which is a push and pull because that later on that, that affects us coming in with Lyme disease. That's one reason why physicians are unwilling to, to, to p pass out uh, antibiotics for us, you know, at the same time, on the other end, it's being used f 
for things like controlling acne and chronic uh, ear infections and uh, uh, things like that, where it's a biofilm-based thing and they really should be breaking up the biofilm rather than just uh, uh, prescribing month after month after month after antibiotic. And actually, I don't mean to be telling you how to do your job here. <laughs> hey, Noah, <laughs> we need to hear this. Doctor, we need to hear this. <laughs> Dr. Abbott. So this whole, I, this whole flexibility thing is absolutely fascinating, but I want to somewhere in here in what you just talked about, I know there's a connection and I don't know what it is, but the mast cell and this whole mast cell activation and where this fits in with that. Cause you, you're hearing more and more about this. And I think that's just, you know, it's it's just more specific. What do I want to say? It's <laughs> it's so so we started hearing oh inflammation is at the heart of every disease, right? And now yes. you know we're hearing oh mast cell uh, mast cell activation is all over the place. And for me, that's just like a more specific technical way of saying there's inflammation. So yeah. what is a mast cell? Why does it get dysregulated? And you know, I, I think we've also, if, if your head's not exploding at this point, uh, you're definitely somebody with Lyme disease who's been studying the immune system for lots and lots of time. But if your head is exploding, don't worry about it. Just go back and listen to this again. There's there's a lot there, and it's important to understand what your immune system is doing and this whole idea of generating immune system flexibility and this whole gut immune system interface. So base, I mean, basically what we said here, and again, kind of going from the science to the model is if you've got a chronic infection, if you've got a chronic issue of any type, your gut's affected. There's no way it's not affected. Even if it doesn't blow it out, even if you don't have tons of gas and stuff like that, there's some dysregulation going on there and it needs to be addressed in some way. So that's, that's one of the take home message here. But anyway, back to mast cells, cause I know that's also involved with people who are having IBS type symptoms or other digestive issues, but it's not, not uh, limited to that, correct? Mast cells, going back to our branches of the immune system, they are one of the innate uh, of the innate branch. So they're one of the first players. And the mast cells, their main job, interestingly, is they are secreting lots of compounds. So um, they're not really doing any killing. They're not phagocytes. They're not trying to engulf things. They're just trying to get to the scene and get other players involved and secreting different types of chemicals, chemokines, cytokines, that help to get some of the bigger players. So one of the most common and well-known uh, of these mediators is histamine. So mast cells are one of the major cells that release histamine. Now, histamine does a lot of things. Actually, one of the positive things that it does is it changes the dynamic of the blood vessel so that it can even allow our white blood cells, some of those immune cells, to get to the tissue. You know, taking this back a, a step further, you know, everything is circulating in our bloodstream, and we've talked about this concept before, the difference between, you know, the bloodstream we're, you know, seeing in the serum versus the tissue. Well, when you have a cellular attack, it's, you know, it's cells in the tissue, and so you have to get immune cells there. But as we should at a normal resting state, we don't have immune cells just randomly going into tissue for no reason. They're staying within the blood vessel. And so we need mediators in the body, different types of chemicals 
that tell the body, hey, let's become a little more permeable. It's okay. We need to send immune cells there. And so what histamine does is actually promotes vasodilation. So it makes the blood vessels a little bit wider um, so you can get more of the cells in there. And it creates a little bit of permeability in the lining of the blood vessel so that there can actually be uh, those white blood cells can actually get into the tissue. So now people are probably starting to think, well, what are, what are some of the symptoms or what do we associate with you know, allergies or too many mast cells? Well, a lot of it is basically too many immune cells in a tissue um, because that's really what the mast cell's job is to do. Wow. So again, it depends, goes back to this flexibility. If something's triggering these mast cells to activate, in the absence of a need for it or to over over express right to to just get going like on a crazy level so again i'm sure these mast cells are activated again going back to a simple thing like when you you sprain your ankle and it swells up to three times the size i mean that's a ton of histamine that's a ton of vasodilation and lymph dilation everything going on there um but then it's it doesn't last that long the swelling goes down fairly quickly Exactly. So, you know, going back to you don't want if you want to resolve then, you know, resolve that inflammation, repair the tissue, you're going to want to get back to that homeostatic balance where you don't have leaky blood vessels and you don't have all of these inflammatory cells going to that area. And um, there are a couple, you know, well-known mechanisms for activating mast cells. One of them is is literally tissue trauma. Um, so like what you just said. Damn it, you know, hurting a tissue. That disruption of the tissue will basically degranulate, fancy word for the mast cell, to release all of its chemical mediators. One of them, one of the major ones being histamine. But that tissue trauma is one of the primary reasons that mast cells get activated. Another one is this cross-linking process, one that people are uh, probably more familiar with in terms of that anaphylactic type of reaction. There's essentially this cross-linking of some of the receptors on the uh, on the mast cell that initiates this really uh, exaggerated cascade that we know as the uh, as this anaphylactic reaction. There's other things that um, will activate the mast cell. Those are um, a couple of the common ones. Um, the Interestingly enough, uh, one of the other mediators and one of the other areas where we see uh, mast cells is actually extracellular parasites. So going back to here's some really big parasite in our body. Now we got, we got to figure out a way to kill it. We can't just engulf it. So the mast cell is really important to help bring in different uh, other cells of the body one of them being IgE, um, that have these specialized proteins, uh, these specialized chemicals that can help to degrade and kill these super large par parasites. So that's sort of the other area where you see mast cells and um, the IgE immunoglobulin involved is these really large parasites. Um, so, but definitely don't want to get too too much in the weeds there since we're sort of towards the end. But um, yes, so there are certainly some theories and I'll direct people to Dr. Ruscio um, and that podcast to, to get more in depth with sort of mast cell activation syndrome. Um, but it's certainly a, a topic where we're starting to see that maybe there is, it's, it's more than just mast cells, but um, this exuberant uh, sort of acute inflammatory response that isn't being able to be resolved. And it actually manifests in so many different symptoms. Um, that, that podcast just really blew me away in terms of the presentations. Um, 
of this sort of mass cell activation syndrome or disorder. But certainly direct people to, to that who want to learn more about it. Sure. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And so you can just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and look for our interview with Dr. Abbott and the immune system. You can either search that or it should be the right there up front unless you're listening to this months after we've done this recording and then you'll have to do a search for it. But it'll be easy enough. Just search for Dr. Abbott and you'll find that. Is, is the mast cell something that can constantly produce this histamine or does it have to recharge? Yeah, so it's sort of it's a degranulation event. So it's all sort of preformed histamine within that cell. So basically, you would just be recruiting more mast cells, being able to um, further release other mediators. We're focusing on histamine. There's so many other things that they release, but um, uh, basically recruiting more cells because essentially once they've sort of secreted their stored amount, then um, they have a relatively high turnover as well. Um, So basically recruiting more mast cells to, to secrete those mediators. Well, Dr. Abbott... Not bad for uh, Saturday morning. <laughs> I think I need to go drink something with no caffeine. Um. <laughs> As always, it's an extreme pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for having the patience to to talk with a knucklehead like me who really, I mean, I've got enough knowledge. What did they say? Enough knowledge to be dangerous. It's like, I really don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm curious and um, you know, I've been in the health field long enough to recognize to recognize patterns. Say, oh, this makes sense, and I've heard about this over there, and try to connect things. And sometimes the plugs don't fit, and sometimes they do. So, thanks for putting up with my questions and helping us understand the immune system a little bit better. What's clear from this conversation is the immune system is ridiculously complex, redundant, complex, overlapping, different phases of it, and we only have the slightest idea of what's going on here. So something like Lyme disease comes along and it's pushing scientists to figure out what's going on with the immune system in these different phases. And part of the, I think the struggle we're having is that we're, we're in areas where, where it's new. It's new science being done. So there's no model to understand it 100%. So those of you who are frustrated and angry about Lyme disease and kind of the science and how come the medicine, you know, isn't sufficient. One reason is, is that we're in deep in the weeds with this, as, as you can tell just from this conversation. And, and this is just, you know, we're in the first chapter of the immune system textbook. So you just imagine, uh, what, what goes on inside your body as it's trying to regulate this and as the Borrelia is trying to sabotage your immune system at at the same time. Yeah, it is a fascinating dance. And I guess the last thought I'll leave people with before we talk next time um, is, yes, the, the emerging therapies and the future of medicine is going to be immunomodulating therapies. And I'm not talking about the the drugs that are out there, the TNF alpha inhibitors and things. They're just they're like a hammer trying to um, or a sledgehammer trying to break a nut. Um, it's just it's a it's a huge whack. But the future is going to be these immunomodulatory therapies that try to restore flexibility or repair overactive and imbalanced immune response 
responses. I still see that as trying to restore immune flexibility, whether that's chronic infection, cancer, autoimmune disease, allergies. It, it applies so much, but the future is, um, of medicine is going to be these immunomodulatory therapies. And interestingly, the first one that I start people with is starting with your breath. Because just by breathing, you can engage a nervous system response, which then can engage a downregulation of an immune response. So just by breathing, by practicing a little yoga, by relaxing for an evening, you can help modulate your immune system. So I'll leave people with that. Take a deep breath. Dr. Abbott, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So I can't wait to, to talk again. Aurora and I have some exciting news. Coming in January, we will be releasing for the first time our top 10 collection of Lime Ninja Radio transcripts. I know many of you have been asking for transcript form. It's much easier to search through an interview in text or to scan it or read it quickly or go back and refer to it when it's written down as opposed to having to listen all your way through it, right? So we've finally gotten around to doing this. It's a monumental task. It takes layers and layers of editing to get it right and turn the spoken word into a coherent and readable form. And we're just about wrapping that up and getting ready to release it out in January. So just to give you a taste, the top 10 are Bob Miller, and Methyl Genetic Nutrition, Worley Robbins, The Magnesium Man, and he has that idea about iron and copper regulation and inflammation. Dr. Terry Walls and her Walls Protocol that she used to heal from MS and that so many Lyme disease people are using for their health. Dr. Bill Rawls and his Functional Medicine and Herbal Medicine. Brenda Cosentino, The Real Food Rebel. Richard Harwitz, MD. We all know who he is. He doesn't need further introduction. Heather Pareto, one of my patients and good friends, and she talks about her ketogenic diet. It's surprising, but that was one of our most popular episodes. Heather's just a delightful young woman. Eva Shoppy, we all know Eva from the University of New Haven and her work with Lyme disease. Jimmy Moore, the international, international best-selling author and ketogenic and intermittent fasting expert. And lastly, Lorraine Johnson. She's the CEO of LymeDisease.org, and she talks about all the wonderful work that they're doing out there. So these are coming up out in January. If you want to be informed about that, and we're probably going to give a discount to our listeners, so pay attention for that as well. The best way is to be informed is to join our mailing list and just go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and give us your email and then we'll let you know when that is all official. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, we are going to be adding some bonus transcripts. It's not just the top 10. There'll be additional ones. We're thinking about three or four additional transcripts. Haven't quite figured that out yet, but we will get to that and let you know as we know more. As most of you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know the street looks both ways before crossing a ninja?
Lyme Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lyme Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lyme Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lyme Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.